0: And so, I'd ask you to turn to John chapter 16, if you will. Our text this morning will be in verses 16 through 22. If you've been with us for any amount of time, you know that we're going through the gospel of John, and uh, of course we're nearing the end, uh, but when the end comes, we may never know. <laughs> We've been in John chapters 13 through 16 now for, for a number of, of weeks, yet we're only dealing with one night. We've been dealing with one night for all of these chapters. And everything that Jesus has been saying to his disciples as he's preparing them for his going to the cross. Now they're nearing the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, having begun this preparation by washing the feet of his disciples in that upper room as they were having the Passover supper and doing that to remind them that they weren't here to reign, they were here to serve. And reminding them that he was going away, but he was not going to leave them fatherless or comfortless. He was going to send his Holy Spirit. After Judas Iscariot left the supper, he began to speak very tenderly and very intimately to his disciples about his father, why he came. Spoke to them about his Holy Spirit, the comforter that was to come. He reminded them that they were to love one another as he had loved them. And this was to be the very heart of their whole ministry. He spoke to them about the hatred of the world, because if the world hated him, they also would hate the disciples and the followers of Jesus. He reminded them of the persecution that would come, even after his death, burial, and resurrection. But he said, but the Spirit will be with you, and I'll be with you. And as we come to verse 16 a new section arises for us he says something quite mysterious to his disciples they don't know what to make of what he says he said a little while and you shall not see me and again A little while, and you shall see me, because I go to the Father. Then said some of his disciples among themselves, What is this that that he saith unto us? A little while, and you shall not see me. And again, a little while, and you shall see me. And because I go to the Father. They said, Therefore, what is this that he saith? A little while. We cannot tell what he saith. Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him, and said unto them, Do you inquire among yourselves of that I said, a little while, and you shall not see me? And again, a little while, and you shall see me? Verily, verily, I say unto you, that you shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. And you shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy." A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow, because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish, for joy that a man is born into the world. And you now, therefore, have sorrow. But I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. Father, we ask for the anointing and blessing of your spirit as we study your word this morning. Lord, make clear these things that may have been mysterious to your disciples, but can become very clear to our hearts. And we thank you, Lord God, for sending your only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We thank you for Jesus, and it is in his name we pray, amen. Jesus' teaching on the Holy Spirit has concluded as he and his disciples continued to walk in the dark of the evening toward Gethsemane, and once again he brings up going back to his father. You know, it's wonderful to know how much Jesus loved to talk to his disciples about his father and how, and how he came to show them and to show us his father. It was pretty clear with everything that he said. If you see me, you see the father. I and the father are one. Can't separate them, you see. He came to show us the father. He came to show us the one that loved them with an everlasting love. The Father was everything to Jesus, and he wants him to be everything to us as well. But what Jesus knew very well about his disciples is that that they were still confused about some of his teachings. They were sorrowful because of some of the things that the Lord told them of the immediate things that were to happen. They had just been hit between the eyes, they had just been hit between the eyes with with the statements of hatred and, and persecution. they were afraid I have to say that this is quite encouraging to me though because these disciples were real men with real problems and what encourages me is that as I look around today we're real people with real problems too and yet the Lord was able to use them and just as he was able to use them he's able to use us as well What we learn is that he's going to use them in a mightier way after the coming of the Holy Spirit upon them. And those of us who have already come to Christ, we should already understand that we have the Holy Spirit and he does mightier things even through us. So let's always remember that they were certainly as human as we are. Let's be careful of false impressions of the disciples and the apostles. They'd be the first to tell you, don't do that. Don't worship me. Don't look at me. Don't exalt me. All we do is exalt Jesus. If there was one thing that the Lord was going to focus upon in this section of chapter 16, in complete contrast to their confusion and to their sorrow and to their fears, it would be the issue of joy. Joy. Now you would think, now he's going to the cross, he's going to suffer, he's going to die. But he wants to make something clear. He wants to make the issue of joy clear to his disciples. We see Jesus' mention of it in in, in the verses 22, as we've already read and we'll read again. We'll see it in verse 24, and it's alluded to in verse 33, the very last verse of this chapter. But there there wasn't a whole lot of joy in the camp of his disciples that night. And Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that there wasn't any joy, even from the very beginning of a very joyous celebration, the Passover Supper. And even though it was to be reflective, it was also something that said, Hey, listen, our God has delivered us. Our God has rescued us. And he'll continue to rescue us as long as we trust in him. And so the Lord, in his tender and very patient way, shined clear light on how their sorrow would turn into joy. But he begins by saying, A little while, and you shall not see me again. And again, a little while, and you shall see me, because I go to the Father. Now, this is somewhat of a mysterious statement made by Jesus. And it was to his disciples. And it was made mysterious by that little phrase, a little while. (laughs) A little while. Now, most modern translations omit the phrase, because I go to the Father. And I want to bring that up now because some of these uh, translators of the newer translations that leave this out, they cite this textual ground due to what is considered a copyist error and because the Lord doesn't use it in verse 19. But in fact, the disciples repeat it in verse 17. And I think that there is a word there, and I, and I would really draw your attention to that one word. It's that word, and. And because I go to the Father. That tells me that Jesus did say it. So in their repeating what Jesus said, they were bewildered at the statement and reminded once again, he's going to the Father, he's leaving us. So more than likely, it was meant to be in the text in both verses. But this is not what is puzzling about this whole statement. What is puzzling is the statement, a little while and you shall not see me. The Greek word here for this first C, because you'll notice there's another one following it, but this first C, the, the Greek word for this word C is the word theoreo. T-H-E, or T-H-E, I'm sorry, T-H-E-O-R-E-O, if you're taking score. Theoreo. Or you can break it down into two words, the Oreo. For those of you that like Oreos. Theoreo. Which literally means to be a spectator. It means to be a spectator. He says, in a little while you shall not see me like you've been seeing me throughout my three and a half years with you. Seeing me, watching me, observing me. Seeing the things that I've done. Seeing the things that were miraculous. In a little while you will not see me like a spectator anymore. By the way, it's the word from which we get the English word theater from. The idea behind the use of this word by Jesus is that the disciples were seeing him face to face. They were contemplating him. They were looking at him him intensely. But in a very short moment, Jesus was going to pass from their sight. As if exiting the stage upon which they saw his every move. And don't forget that Jesus was already on his way to the grave. But in the next phrase of verse 16, Jesus said, and again, a little while, and you shall see me. This second word, see, here, is not the same Greek word as the first. It is not theoreo. It is the word optonomai has the same root word as optometrist opt optic to see physically but this word optanomai has a very deep meaning and a rich meaning because it means to gaze and observe with comprehension that which appears to gaze and observe with comprehension that which appears He will shortly disappear from your sight on the stage upon which you have seen him, but in a little while again, he will appear, but you will see him with comprehension. And this refers to the period now between Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Those mysterious 40 days, that mysterious 40-day period when he appeared and disappeared. When they saw him only to have him vanish before their eyes. In light of that word's definition or these words' definition, the disciples had been observing the Lord for those three and a half years and little by little they had begun to see something of his glory and of his divine personality. and In a little while, they, they were going to see spontaneously and automatically upon all that Jesus Christ was. And the day of Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit would make all the difference. It hadn't happened yet, but he had promised it. Jesus had promised it to them. It wasn't an abrupt change of subject by the Lord here. The Holy Spirit that he had been speaking of so much in in, in recent verses or in, in previous verses, the Holy Spirit would affect and influence all of the changes that they would have after his resurrection and ascension. But the beginning of this new vision, the beginning of this new vision that he's describing to his disciples was to be at the resurrection. The enlargement of the vision was going to be at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit would come upon them and they then would see now with the eyes of the Spirit. The final manifestation of that vision awaits the rapture of the church when we shall all see him face to face. The Apostle Paul somewhat alludes to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12 when he says to them, For now we see through a glass darkly, But then, face to face, now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. How God knows us, we will know him, we'll see him face to face. But the statement that Jesus made to his disciples (laughs) could not be deciphered by them. Right? Verse, verse 17 then said some, some of his disciples among themselves, what, what, what is it that he saith unto us? A little while and, and you shall not see me. And again, a little while and you shall see me. And because I go to the Father. They said therefore, what is it that he, what is this that he saith? A little while we cannot tell what he saith. But these, these guys are like school kids here. Right? Those of you that are teachers you understand what I mean. You have spent your entire class lesson, uh, uh, speak whatever class it might be, uh, you know, laying down some new uh, issues, laying down some new theories, laying down some new thing, and your students are looking at you, and then, you know, you're so, you're, you, I mean, you're just going after it, man, and you're, you're laying it down. They should understand it, and they look at each other like, What? <laughs> But but we do have to we do have to give them credit about one thing. They, they were re- actually really listening to Jesus. They just couldn't understand what he was saying. I mean, it's good to know that they were really listening to Jesus all the time and trying really hard to follow him. They were certainly depressed, we know that earlier on by hearing Jesus repeatedly insist that he was going away. So every time he would bring it up, it was like, oh, here he goes again. Then he would say, "I'm coming back," and they say, "Oh, that's good." Then he says, "But I'm going away." You know, it's that back and forth, back and forth. So we know that they were listening, but they weren't expressing their bewilderment to Jesus. They were expressing it to each other. And so, in one sense, they were receiving, uh, like, uh, in one sense, they were still partakers of milk. They were only three and a half years with Jesus, but they were still rather immature. Before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, they learned a lot. They retained a lot, but they were still immature. And what they were receiving from Jesus was like strong meat to them. Now, think about this for just a moment. The crosswinds of confusion were tossing them to and fro in all sorts of directions. But in a matter of six weeks or so, their confusion would be blown away, if I may use that term by a rushing mighty wind. My question to you is, do these things still happen today? Do we get confused? Are we really listening? Are we really paying attention? Are we praying and asking the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom and to understand the things that are being said? I want you to consider something that the Apostle Paul said, let me just interject here. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 15, he said, and he gave some apostles, and I I begin here in verse 11 because those apostles are these disciples. He gave some apostles, messengers, sent out the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting or completion of the saints, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. But here's the reason, verse 14, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. I think it's sad to say that that's happening in the church today. The slight of men let's not believe the whole word of god let's 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 bring other things in let's 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 be open-minded let's be tolerant about all these other issues cunning craftiness they lie in wait to deceive but you have a moment today read acts chapter 20 beginning at verse 17 and all the way down to the end where paul is speaking to the ephesian elders in miletus and he tells them that very, within their very church, within their very congregation, men will rise up to deceive, even among their own leadership. Read about that. And that was in Paul's time. But notice what he tells us. He says, but speaking the truth in love. First of all, the key is not so much the love, the, tr- the truth is the key. Speak the truth. But when you speak it, speak it in love. May grow up. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into Him in all things which is the head, even Christ. So these disciples at this moment were being tossed to and fro. Even by the confusion that, uh, you know, the, the things that even Jesus was saying. A little while, you won't see me. A little while, you'll see me. But Jesus discerned their hearts and their minds and their thoughts and he knew this was going to come up. Of course he knew. In verse 19 he says, now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him and said unto them, do you inquire among yourselves of that? I said, a little while and you shall not see me. And again, a little while and you shall see me. And may I say that when he says this to them, he says this with all the tenderness upon which Jesus loves his disciples. with patience, with kindness. He says, do you want to ask me something about this? Because in their perplexity, these disciples were more like those same school children I was telling you about earlier, who when presented with some new mathematical or scientific concept beyond their current stages of learning, they would ask each other, we've all been there, we've all been in school, I think, some school, somewhere. But well, we, we, we would ask each other questions. Hey, did you get it? I didn't get it. Did you get it? I, I didn't get that. Does anybody get it? I mean, what does this all mean? Help, right? Did we get it? And Jesus said, I don't think you got it. <laughs> I know you didn't get it. So they may have seemed a little impatient with Jesus, but the Lord was not impatient with them. Jesus knew that they didn't know or understand what a little while was and so he spoke to them not so much about a little while, he spoke to them about a little weeping. He said, verily, verily, I say unto you that you shall weep and lament but the world shall rejoice and you shall be sorrowful but your sorrow shall be turned into joy if you have a highlighter highlight that phrase but your sorrow shall be turned into joy or one of those fancy colored pencils that you can underline underline that but your sorrow shall be turned into joy and then he goes on and says a woman when she is in travail hath sorrow in other words a woman that's bearing child and getting ready to give birth because her hour has come she has sorrow Pain, affliction. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. And ye now therefore have sorrow. But I will see you again, <clears throat> and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. Isn't that a wonderful statement? Here is a joy that no man will take from you. No man will take your joy from you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ today, a believer in the fact that Jesus Christ died on, behalf of, uh, on, on our behalf, died on a cross, shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, died and was buried, and on the third day he rose again, and he's alive today, no one can take our sorrow or, or our joy away from, from that. No one. No joy is taken from us because of what Christ has done. So there's a little explanation now that Jesus wants to give to his disciples. A little explanation. Verily, verily, I say unto you, that you shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice, and you shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. Now Jesus gently told them that they would weep and lament now, those are two very important Greek words, weep and lament. It's kleio and threnel. Uh, the, the first one, to weep, means to bewail loudly. The emphasis is really more on the physical wailing, the physical crying, the, the, you know, the, you know, the, the, the loudness of it, as it were. bewailing greatly. The second word, lament, means to mourn greatly, but it more focuses upon the... the The internal part, the the spiritual part. The spiritual mourning of someone down deep inside. And and it it translates out through the bewailing. So he says, you're going to weep and you're going to mourn. You're going to lament. But soon, weeping and lamenting would be swallowed up by joy and laughter. Still, nothing more terribly reveals this world for what it is than Jesus' statement, the world shall rejoice. Peter, think about this. What happened that night when Jesus died on the cross, or that day that Jesus died on the cross? And even leading up to that, that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, which we'll see soon enough. The sorrow and the anguish, the pain. The disciples still didn't understand it fully, but Jesus did. What do we know about Peter that, that same night that Jesus was arrested? Peter would go out and he would weep bitterly after his betrayal of Jesus. All the disciples would shed tears and lament over the murder of their beloved master. All of them, but where were they? They were all scattered. The only one that we know was close enough was John. But it was the world that would rejoice in that its hatred for God and for his son is revealed and is being revealed every day. And may I add to that, that the world rejoices in that its hatred is for God, for his son, and for his people. And that's being revealed every day in this world. I did a little test the other day. I was watching the, um, the funeral of Billy Graham. And, um, I'll say I was watching it on Fox News, because they had it on Fox News. I was watching it on Fox News. But as I'm watching it and, and just being blessed by the things that were being said by Franklin Graham and, and the songs that were being sung and uh, the hymns being uh, lifted up and, and you know the things being said, I thought for a moment, I said, I'm gonna check the other big news corporations, you know, that uh, you know, this, is a, this is a significant person in, in American history. No, I turned over, and all they were doing was interviewing people that were complaining about the government and the present administration. (laughs) So I just turned it back to Fox News because I wanted to see what was being said. The point is that the world hates God and his son and his people every day. And it's growing in intensity every day until Jesus comes again. But what was sad on the day of Jesus' arrest that night, and even more sadly, it was the religious leadership who led the way in mocking the Son of God. I hope this is a help to all of us here, that making friends with this world is not the way to go. Making friends with the world is not the way to go. Don't forget how the world responded to God and to Christ that day. Is it any wonder that James, in his letter, chapter 4, verse 4, says, to the church, you adulterers and adulteresses, and he speaks spiritually here about them, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity or hostility with God? God. Friendship with the world is hostility with God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. We have to understand the difference between the world as a a place in which we live. We call it the earth, you know. But when the Bible calls it the cosmos, it's not speaking so much Scientifically, as it's speaking spiritually, of being that which is in total opposition to God. The world system, which we know from the scriptures, has been given over for a time to the prince of the power of the air, which is the devil himself. We have to believe. If we believe in God, we have to believe there's an enemy there is an enemy the apostle John writes about loving not the world 1 John chapter 2 verses 15 through 17 he says love not the world neither the things that are in the world if any man love the world the love of the father is not in him and I I just want to say that you know when you look at that statement if any man love the world the love of the father is not in him I don't think you have to go to great lengths to really know the interpretation of that it's very clear very simple If any man love the world, you love the world's system. And everything about the world's system, listen, the love of the Father is not in you. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And what he does describe here in verse 16 is... That the lust of flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, which were the very things that brought man to fall in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, are the very same things that continue being emphasized and being, uh, being pushed upon people by the enemy himself who was in the garden as the serpent. And it's still going on today. Or else John wouldn't bring it up. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. If you want a good definition of what the world is, there it is. It is not of the Father, but is of the world, and the world passes away. <clears throat> it is something that is not going to last. The world passes away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. What matters to us as believers in Jesus Christ is that which is eternal that which is eternal, that which has been given to us by God, that which has been given to us in his word, that which has been given to us through the power of his Holy Spirit. And that which was done for us by his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. That's what matters. The bottom line for life is Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus gave his disciples a little illustration. In verses 21 and 22, he said, A woman, when she is in travail, has sorrow, because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish, for joy that a man is born into the world. And ye now, therefore, have sorrow, but I will see you again. And your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. And this was certainly an illustration that the disciples and anyone could and should understand. I think we were all pretty much born in the same way. I think we all came into this world pretty much the same way. I think many of you as husbands and, 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 and wives and dads and, and moms, you know, you we, we, we all went through that process to some extent that Jesus is explaining here. So it was something that they could understand. The birth of a child. The birth of a child swallows up the pain of the delivery. The birth of the child swallows up the pain of the delivery. By his appearances after the resurrection, the Lord Jesus turned the disciples' sorrows into joy. That's why he said there, your sorrow shall be turned into joy. What the Lord does is brings, he brings true, vibrant joy into our lives, not by replacement, not by substitution, but by transformation. And I believe this is the most important point that we need to make about all of this. He turns our sorrow, not by replacing it, or by substituting, but by transforming. The means of solving problems by substitution, when it comes right down to it, lacks maturity. The means of solving problems by substitution lacks maturity. Let me give you just a very simple, mundane illustration. A child breaks a toy and the toy is replaced, until the new one is broken and upsets the child. Ah, sending the parent to get another toy. Getting another toy, replace it, they break, And it's just a never-ending cycle. That's replacement, that's substitution. Jesus didn't say that the mother's sorrow or pain was replaced by joy, notice but that the sorrow was transformed into joy. The same baby, listen, the same baby that caused the pain also caused the joy. I don't think of any mother in this whole room here would have ever said, while while you're delivering your child, oh, the pain, ah, you know, you're going through, pardon me, I mean, (laughs) I've been in those rooms, I know, whatever, you know. Whatever is happening, y'all just, just picture it yourselves. Okay, so it's all going on. And then the, the child is bored, and, and the mom says, no, give me another child because that one gave, gave me all the pain. Is there any other child around? Do you, you understand the illustration here? No, the same baby that caused the pain now causes the joy. Oh, and then finally, oh, let me see the baby. Oh, <laughs> that what happens. Same baby. My mom doesn't say, oh, yep, yeah, well. <laughs> Don't do that. Wise guy, hey, okay. Consider for just a moment the life of one Joseph. Consider the life of Joseph, son of Yaakov, Jacob, sold by his brothers into slavery. Sorrow, pain, anguish. That could last for a long time and bring a lot of bitterness, right? So then he goes to Egypt, becomes the slave of one Potiphar. And Potiphar loves us, Joseph. But Potiphar's wife implicates him in something that he didn't do and all of a sudden Potiphar puts Joseph into prison for a long, long time, a very long time. Sorrow, pain, anguish, bitterness, possibly, for anyone else. Eventually, Joseph comes out of prison and becomes the second in command of all of Egypt. And his brothers come to Egypt because of a famine. And now they cannot recognize Joseph. They come begging, as it were, for food. To make that whole long story short, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. And he said something of great importance to them. He said, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. You meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. What did God do? He didn't replace. He transformed. He transformed hopeless situations into victories. That's how wonderful our God is. That he transforms hopeless situations into victories in a very quick little way let me say that in the time of Balaam that terrible prophet that the Lord turned curses into blessings Deuteronomy 23 verse 5 nevertheless the Lord thy God would not hearken unto Balaam but the Lord thy God turned notice didn't replace he turned He turned the curse into a blessing unto thee because the Lord thy God loved thee. And so after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is why we're talking about the joy of the resurrection today based on this particular text because after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the subsequent appearances after the resurrection, the disciples forgot the dark three days and three nights of their anguish. And the world in all of its malice and in all of its hatred and organized spite could never and will never take away that joy that resides in the heart of every believer in the risen Christ. Never. It didn't do it then, it won't do it now. And here is another fact of great importance. The disciples didn't think of this then. But it would become ever clearer to the disciples much later. It was Jesus' promise in John chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Now, let me ask you: Were they listening? I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. Isn't that wonderful. I'd have been saying, "Let's go now." But he had a lot more to tell him after that. But here's the thing. How soon we forget that when Jesus said, the world is going to hate you because it hated me first. And the religious leaders are going to persecute you because they hated me too. And all of a sudden, there was a forgetfulness but not after the resurrection. Because Jesus said, a little while and you will see me. You will gaze upon me and observe me with comprehension when I appear before you. This is what we need to know as we await the glorious return of our blessed hope. And the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus said in Luke 21 keep looking up and lift up your heads because your redemption draweth nigh. Keep looking up. Don't stop looking up. Don't stop waiting. Don't stop hoping. Keep looking up. I'm coming. I'm coming. I went to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come again and receive you unto myself. In fact, that's snatching us away from here when you read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So the true believer knows that Jesus did die for man's sins and rose again to give man a new life. And folks, we need to know this. We need to know it like the back of our hand. We need to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we need to know it not just in our minds. We need to know it and experience it and, and appreciate it and love it in our own hearts. We need to know that that new life that Jesus Christ has given us is a life that is both abundant and eternal. And when I say it's abundant, maybe God blesses us here, but I know one thing, he certainly blesses us where we're going. He says, lay up for yourselves treasures, not on earth, but in heaven. Whatever we're doing now, let's get ready for heaven. Let's get ready for our time with him forever. So the believer's joy, the joy that Jesus is, 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 is describing in all of this, the believer's joy is something that is permanent. The believer's joy is something that is deep-seated in our own hearts. And it is a joy that is immovable. You can't move it. You can't take it. You can't steal it. No one can. It belongs to you. It is your joy of what Christ has done for you. And when the trials and the sorrows of earth come upon You, as it came upon them, the disciples and the followers of Jesus, we will all know that the joy of the Lord's presence and care will never fail. We know that the Lord's presence and care will never fall short for any of us, and the joy of the Lord's presence and care will never falter in any way for any of us. Will we still have joy tomorrow? Now, let me ask you this Will we have sorrow tomorrow? We may. We might have sorrow later today. Something might happen, something might transpire that we didn't expect. In fact, most of the times that we, we, we are hit with, 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 a, with a reason for sorrow, it's because it's an unexpected thing that happens. But will we have joy in the morning? Could we have joy even at that very moment? Yes. And you know why? Because joy is not happiness. Happiness is something that we have when, you know, that's, it's, it's, uh, it's fleeting. But joy is something that is our strength. That it says in Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 10, the, Lord, the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. doesn't matter what we face in this life. The joy will always be there. We don't conjure up joy. We may conjure up happiness, but we don't conjure up joy. And I leave you with John 14, verses 16 through 18, because this is the reminder to the disciples as it is to us that Jesus said in verse 16, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, the Holy Spirit, that he may abide with you forever. Forever. But are you getting the point? (laughs) All right. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. Do they see him? If they have eyes of faith, they see him. The world cannot receive him, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. Doesn't even know him. But you know him. For he will dwell with you. For he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. But notice this. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. I will come to you. That's Jesus speaking. That's Jesus' spirit. He said, I'll come to you. You're never separated from me and I'll never be separated from you. Go back and read John 15. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Abide in me, and I'll abide in you.